Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western France Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 24th of February 2020 and this is episode 149. On today's programme, journalist and writer Vanessa Holborn talks about her recent book on the 1919 Amritsar massacre. This book was published by Pen and Sword. I spoke to Vanessa over the phone from London. Vanessa, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Amritsar massacre? Um, okay, so normally I am a journalist, so I spend quite a lot of time, as you can imagine, online googling things and I was actually googling something else when um, I fell upon the Amritsar massacre um, and I'd not heard anything about it at all completely unfamiliar with it so I I clicked on to learn a bit more fell down a bit of a, a rabbit hole and I think what intrigued me initially was it seemed a sort of very different event on on the surface to um, how it is actually the significance of it and generally it's considered quite a turning point in the struggle for Indian independence and yet mostly it seems to be unknown about so um, once I'd learned a bit more about it I did sort of ask around the sort of people that I would normally have expected to, to know about it who was sort of interested in history and that that timeline and again very few people knew about it so yeah here was this pivotal event that no one seemed to know about. Why do you think a book was necessary on the event? So really sort of once I started researching it I went to um, visit the MP for Ealing Southall, Surrender Sharma, who sort of regularly brings it up in the, in the House of Commons with the sort of Prime Minister's question time um, when it's an anniversary of the event itself. And, and that's when I sort of discovered a bit more about it. And although it remains unknown to a large sort of proportion of the British population who have Punjabi background, you know, perhaps grandparents, it's still very much a, an open wound. The centenary was coming up last year, so that seemed like a good time to discuss you know, to put this back into discussion. And that's why I sort of felt a book was enough. Part of the reason I think it requires a book rather than maybe just a magazine article is because of the events leading up to it, you know, were all a result of everything else that was going on at the time. So it's not something you can summarise even in a sort of long form article. Which is exactly what I'm going to ask you to do now. <laughs> Could you give us a brief chronology of the events of the massacre, sort of what happened where, and then we can go into the reasons and its consequences yeah. in a minute. So the massacre itself happened in um, the Jalawalian Bar, which is a sort of enclosed public space in Amritsar, in the Punjab, very much enclosed, high walls, hardly any exits, and the exits that existed um, were tiny. So it's not the sort of thing that you can get out of quickly. Not a particularly attractive place um, at that point in time, but it was certainly where, where, where people, you know, went to rest, could be very busy. On the, the day of the massacre, they estimate there were about 20,000 people in there. Typically, people went to visit the Golden Temple in Amritsar, which was a sort of pilgrimage place. And then afterwards, the logical thing to do was to head off to this open area um, to have a rest. Unfortunately, on that day, it was extra busy because there was a Sikh festival of New Year. And because of the trouble that had, had been in the region a sort of couple of days before, they'd also shut down a local horse and cattle fair that a lot of people would usually have been at. So it was very busy there. 
and there had been a political meeting um, organised for four o'clock in the afternoon. Displeased at this banned meeting going ahead, by quarter past five, soldiers filed into the into the bar, took up position on a raised a raised section um, about fifty metres away from the crowd, and without any warning, their commanding officer Reginald Dyer gave the order to fire, um, and the troops opened fire on the on the crowd of civilians who were unarmed. Um, some were there attending the political meeting, some were just there resting as they would, lingering around in Amritsar. Uh, the shooting lasted about 10 minutes. Uh, 1,650 rounds of ammunition were fired in that 10 minutes. And the official figure, even though there were about 20,000 people there, were that 379 unarmed civilians were left dead with many more wounded. After ceasing fire and leaving just a sort of enough bullets to make sure that himself and the soldiers could leave without um, any risk to them, um, the dead and the dying were left there um, in the enclosed space with no medical aid and actually there was a curfew imposed at the time so anyone caught out helping the wounded after 8pm would also have found themselves in a lot of trouble. So which units, before we get into why it happened, what units of the British Army were involved in the massacre? Well, it was a bit of a mishmash of troops because what had happened was two days before there had been rioting. So various sort of soldiers and units had been sent down there. Um, and by the time this event happened, General Dyer had taken control. And from the troops at his um, disposal, he picked uh, 90 soldiers to take into the bar. Uh, 50 had rifles. They were sort of made up about half and half of Gurkhas and then Indian Army soldiers who were mostly sort of from border tribes. Um, and it has been suggested that they were selected because those within the um, Dali Walim Bar were a mixture of Hindu, Muslims and Sikhs. So the, the, the border tribes, you know, may have had less in common with them. He had another 40 Gurkhas armed with their knives and five troops of about 50 men stationed around the area in case of any trouble. So it was several units of the Indian Army mixed up. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had, he went in a car with a couple of other majors. They had two bodyguards. There were another two policemen and they did have some armoured vehicles, but they didn't fit into the square itself because you can only approach the square down very narrow passageways. So that brings us to the question of why did the British open fire? It was um, it was a pre-planned strike. I think uh, a lot of people who come new to the massacre may may consider it a sort of an impulse reaction to some British uh, army people finding themselves, you know, under siege in this enclosed space. But that was not the case at all. Earlier in the day, Dyer had led his troops through the town to read out loud a proclamation that sort of banned these public gatherings and he had returned back to his sort of makeshift base by one o'clock so he only left at sort of four-ish to march again to the to the um, area so he had several hours in which he planned his uh, fire firing squad if you like um, and he certainly had had intelligence from the scene um, that crowds were gathering there in Jalud Wallimbar um so yeah he, he it wasn't a 
uh, a knee-jerk reaction, if you like, to finding himself in a position of danger. Um, it was a deliberate act. So I think you've indicated that Dyer may have been responsible. Why did he do what he did? Yes, it's, I mean, it's a massively complex um, question. And in the strictest sense, perhaps Dyer is to blame in that he planned the attack and he gave the order. Although there is some confusion when you look at the situation, why it was Dyer who'd actually journeyed to Amritsar himself and put himself in, in charge, if you like, taking charge as the most senior officer, because there's, there was quite a lot of chaos and confusion in the few days before Dyer got there. Other people are often blamed for the events, and indeed one of those would be um, Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who at the time was the Lieutenant Governor of the Punjab. Um, he was ultimately Dyer's senior officer. You know, he was well known as a hardliner, and he did know the area was particularly volatile. Um, in the end, he was actually assassinated for his part in the massacre um, in 1940. Um, and it was O'Dwyer who had, if you like, set in motion the event that caused the rioting that had happened in Amritsar a few days before this massacre. Um, they, those riots were in response to deporting, the deporting of two nationalist supporters and Gandhi as well, who um, had basically been kind of banned from the area, if you like. O'Dwyer had also censored the press. So we have this very heavy-handed approach. Some might say that was rather short-sighted and not he, that he didn't really have a grip on, on the, the way that the public had begun to feel about these very top-down um, measurements. O'Dwyer was also very slow to push Dyer for any sort of explanation, any investigation. He never cross-examined, if you like, um, Dyer about his sort of changing story. Um, when he was asked about the event. And he went on to support Dyer throughout um, the later inquiry. Then when Dyer went back in back to England, O'Dwyer was still very much in his corner, trying to prove that this, this event was necessary. So, yeah, I think a lot of people would blame O'Dwyer as being, if you like, the superior officer and perhaps someone who set the wheels in motion. Other people that might be to blame would be the sort of the civilian deputy commissioner who was actually new in his job but you know he was supposed to be in charge of Amrit so people say that he was very quick to hand over to the military um, if you like passing the buck a bit. Other people might think that the current or the the viceroy at the time Lord Chelmsford um, was to blame in that he passed the, re, the sort of very repressive anti-terrorism laws, the Rowlett Act, um, that came in sort of after the war instead of lifting some of the, the measures that had been taken to ensure peace in India while we were sort of fighting the, the First World War. He decided in his wisdom that the Indian sort of populace still needed very much this top-down management. Uh, the Viceroy never visited Amritsar himself to sort of see what had occurred or what could have occurred um, and he also left poor old Edwin Montague back in the UK who was the Secretary of State for India very much in the dark about the event you know really sort of dragged his heels if you like about what happened. So what was the official response to the massacre? The the significance really of of the response was perhaps less about the the response itself and the pace at which it didn't move so the sort of key word here is that it was a very slow response. 
and it lacked consensus. So initially, two sort of concerned academics went from Amritsar up to where O'Dwyer was stationed to sort of try and say to him, look, this has happened, you've got to go down to Amritsar and do something. But O'Dwyer wouldn't even get out of bed. Meanwhile, Dyer only filed his report six hours after the event happened. And And when we're talking about filed a report, we're talking a very, very basic, this happened, this many people died. So that kind of initial response was, if you like, to brush it under the carpet. And initially, it certainly looked as if Dyer had just been accepted as sort of hero of the hour, putting down rebels and bringing calm to to the Punjab region with this short, sharp shock. Unfortunately, when you look at it, it wasn't borne out by the facts because although Amritsar itself was obviously very quiet immediately after the massacre and then martial law was imposed there too. So that, that did, if you like, stop any reaction to it. But the rest of the Punjab carried on with a, a lot of unrest you know there were there were riots there was vandalism of um anything that was kind of considered a british institution so you're looking at telegraph wires being cut railway tracks being pulled up the all india congress committee you know were the people who were started to push for an inquiry into the event you know we, the british government um, and the indian government really tried not to do anything. Eventually, by sort of about June, the India office had started to ask the Indian government, you know, to have a think about getting an inquiry together. Uh, that was to go on to be called the Hunter Committee. That that didn't meet until October 1919. Um, so you can see there was quite a delay before anything was actually done. And it wasn't until August um, the 25th that Dyer submitted any kind of fuller report to the authorities. You know, they left him, if you like, alone for all that time to kind of come up with his report, by which time he had decided that his actions were to provide what he called a moral effect across the whole region, if you like, to do something in Amritsar that would prevent more violence and disorder across the whole of the region. You would think that having a, an inquiry set up as a response to event, even if it was very slow to, to, to come into being, would be a great, a, perhaps a logical conclusion, something to bring closure. But unfortunately, the Hunter Committee didn't bring closure, partly because the Hunter Committee themselves couldn't agree on, on what was wrong and what was right and, and how Dyer would be punished or not punished, partly because the Hunter Committee decisions were split along racial lines. So you have the, the chair of the committee, um, Lord Hunter, and then five other, four other British members, and then three Indian members. So there was sort of balance, but unfortunately by the time they came to making a decision, they had split very much along racial lines, and the three Indian members of the committee actually filed a minority report alongside the committee's findings. They agreed, for example, that Dyer was wrong to open fire without giving a warning, but they disagreed on the impact, perhaps, of the shooting. And the minority report, for example, said 
dyers, dyer shooting had seriously damaged relations in British India. So again, no closure there after this very slow inquiry. It was then passed off to uh, the Legislative Council of the Viceroy. And again, they couldn't agree amongst themselves, you know, should Dyer be sacked? Should he just be removed from his post? Should he be prosecuted? Should he be court-martialed? You know, what they were all looking for really is a way to handle the situation without upsetting someone but of course you you can't do that you can't make an omelette without breaking egg you know you can't not punish someone and expect those who've suffered to feel happy with that result and you can't perhaps punish a soldier for doing his job if you feel that that would then cause a lot of you know a lack of morale and a lot of problems there something was done but it it was not the thing that brought closure so what was the immediate uh, political impact of the massacre and the subsequent hunter report in india and the uk in the 20s and the 30s so yeah Amritsar as I mentioned was very much sort of subdued after the massacre and you know the people there lived in a climate of fear because everyone knew someone that was affected Um, but the unrest in surrounding areas did carry on Uh, certainly the Punjab stayed a very volatile area and really nationalists sort of became far more determined to see independence figures like Gandhi you know started to to change their opinion, Gandhi had been happy to work with Britain for a sort of self-rule situation with dominion status. But yes, in 1920, Gandhi returned his army medal. You know, it was the beginning really of nationalists coming together to really claim back India. Back in the British community within India still supported Dyer. You know, they fundraised a lot of money for him. And um, back in the UK, I think Dyer was less supported. Although the news had been slow to sort of reach England, as the facts dripped out, Dyer became less and less popular. I think, um, and that's mainly because of you know the fact that there was no warning. You know, it it wasn't considered mili- good military practice to fire on one set of people. You know, for the benefit the benefit of making another set of people too scared to do something. The the government of India sort of published its response, but certainly that wasn't the sort of end to the situation. Tellingly, when Dyer died in by 1927, he was actually given. A very grand funeral in London, um, which is very unusual for an officer of his rank. And of course, by then, the government had changed. It was a conservative government by then. Body was sort of in rest at the chapel in Wellington Barracks. It protested along Horse Guards Parade to St Martin's in the Field for a funeral. And the cortege was quite impressive. Four horses, mounted soldiers, a gun carriage, guardsmen, mourners, cars, 50 marching soldiers. So, so you're looking at quite a state affair. That certainly did cost some money, would have necessitated organisation and road closures. So what were the long-term cultural, political and social impacts of the massacre over the last hundred years? Yeah, the sort of brutality of the massacre and the slow response that we've discussed certainly consolidated that call for Indian independence. And a lot of people feel it made Indian independence inevitable. And that in turn, um, you know, had the ramifications for sort of British colonialism. Another aspect is that alongside as Gandhi became sort of more political and more involved in the Indian Congress that that did mean that a sort of crack appeared in the Muslim Hindu unity 
that had that had begun, um, which meant the sort of Muslim Al Jinnah began to retreat from the Congress and and became very much focused on working with the Muslim League for a separate Muslim state, which obviously became Pakistan. And then you're you're looking at all the problems that and all the violence associated with partition. So Amritsar is often seen as the cause you know, of the breakup of India and all the chaos that, that came along with partition. Also, you're looking at sort of the way that Edmund, Edwin Montague's role in Amritsar had sort of an effect uh, politically. While he favoured reform, um, he was sort of unable really to cope with, with the backlash and the underhand methods of um, the establishment that were very keen on keeping, you know, as you can imagine, the British Empire kicking over. And when he sort of failed to cope in the House of Commons debate, it sort of cast quite a long shadow. And it's interesting that the Liberal Party have never since returned to govern the country as a as a majority. So in, in that way, I think it's, you know, we're still looking at fallout now in a way, the way that perhaps the Liberal government or the Liberal Party is viewed. Um, and certainly it still affects British-Indian um, relationships today. It overshadows every single state visit. You know, quite, there's regularly, every year, questions are raised in Parliament. So, you know, there's still a lot of fallout from it. And probably that is because we never achieved closure straight after the incident itself. Which I suppose brings us to the next question. How is the massacre remembered in India and the UK today? Yes, um, it's interesting because although the majority of British citizens probably don't remember Amritsar at all, it's, it's still very much an open wound to the section of the British public that does have a sort of connection to Punjab, whether that's, you know, grandparents. They certainly will have heard word of mouth about the event and its aftermath. They'll have been told of the fear that their families lived with at that time. And in Amritsar itself, in the, the bar, which is a nice memorial park today when you when you can visit it, um, was bought fairly soon after by a group of nationalists. Um, in ni- and in 1951, the government of India established the site as, as a memorial. So there today, you can still see bullet holes in the, in the wall. There's a, a, a well, the martyr's well is still there. Lots of people jumped into this well and are sort of desperate bid to get out of the hail of bullets um, but unfortunately they then suffocated to death because they all jumped in at the same time and you know there was nowhere to get out so so you're looking at you know a difference there for the the, the Punjabi um, population here in, in Britain it's still very much a living memory um, which is why UK politicians regularly call for an apology um, the Queen's visited and David Cameron um, and they always do express regret, but um, an actual apology has never been offered. Which leads me to my final question is, where can people learn more about your research and book? Yeah, so so my book is available, obviously, from the publishers, Pen and Sword, um, but also it's from Amazon and Waterstones, all the sort of regular bookshops. Vanessa, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.